the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you could be with us. And for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Uh, Maybe there's an issue in your personal life that you'd like biblical counsel on or a question as you've been studying God's word that you need help with. Well, if we can help again locally, it's 843-525-1859 or toll free. Uh, The number is 877-WAGP980. Uh, So either of those numbers will get you through and we're happy to do whatever we can to be of help today. Rick, a lot of people email their questions directly in at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. We're happy to receive them that way as well. And I think we've already had some questions that have come in. We did, uh, Pastor. And actually, last time we had a question that we kind of rushed through. So we wanted to give it a little more time. Uh, Dick from Bluffton asks, uh, it appears there are six references to the office of deacon, singular, in Scripture, including four in letters written by Timothy. Uh, The other references are a general one in Philippians and a special one in Romans 16, one of Phoebe, a woman. Uh, Given the specific use of the word wife by Timothy uh, when laying out qualifications for a deacon in 1 Timothy 3, 2, inferring a deacon would be male. Is there disagreement between Paul and Timothy on gender as a qualification of the office of deacon? Well, first of all, First and Second Timothy are written by, of course, the Apostle Paul. Those are letters from Paul to Timothy, who's a young pastor in his faith. Uh, he calls Timothy his child in the faith because uh, Paul had a profound influence in his life. He was an old covenant saint when Paul met him and his mother and grandmother and was able to bring the full message of all that Jesus fulfilled and they became new covenant believers. And so in that sense, in the truest sense, you could say, well, Paul kind of led him to the Lord. Of course, there was a lot of background behind that leading as there often is today, even in a conversion. Uh, When you think about the uh, office of elder and deacon for those are the only two ongoing offices in the new testament there was an office for instance of apostle Uh, there is no such office today there's the gift of apostleship but not the office of apostle because to have been an apostle you had to have seen the risen christ you had to have been personally selected by him and if those things were true then second corinthians 12 12 says that you would be able to do the signs wonders and miracles of an apostle so not everyone Uh, can claim apostleship. But with that said, there are two ongoing offices in the New Testament, the office of elder and the office of deacon. So for instance, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, the apostle opens that chapter by saying, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he does. The word overseer is used interchangeably with the word elder or even the word pastor 
or if you're using an older English, they don't translate it overseer, but as bishop. Uh, in Titus 1, he says, for this reason, I left you in Crete, Paul writing to Titus, Titus, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And the directions are then spelled out. If any man is above pro- reproach and so forth. And, and so he says, you're to appoint elders. And then he says, for the overseer must be. So again, there the word elder overseer, again, bishop in the older English is used interchangeably of the same office. So that's one office. What's interesting is that the office of elder is not unique to the New Testament. You find it in the Old Testament. What you do not find in the Old Testament concerns your question. And it's an important observation to make because it will help you to understand the function and who potentially can serve in the office of of deacon, if you ask that question. So the office of deacon is a new covenant position. You don't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. So after Paul delineates the requirements for an elder, he then says deacons likewise must be. And he begins to give the qualifications for a deacon. So important question to ask is if the office of deacon is a new covenant, New Testament office, where did it begin? And there's really only one place in all the New Testament that you can point to. And of course, you'd expect to find it here in the Acts of the Apostles, because the Acts is a transitional book from the ascension of Christ as uh, the first 30 years of church history has unfolded. And we read in Acts 6, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. So they are in Israel and here specifically in the city of Jerusalem, you had Hellenistic Jews. Those were Jews who were raised and brought up in a Greek culture outside of Israel. And you had Hebraistic Jews. Those are Jewish Jews, so to speak. Uh, That was their language, their culture and everything. And in the process, probably not because of a racial thing or a prejudicial thing, But the Hebristic Jews were born and raised there. And of course, there was a number of widows amongst them. And the Hellenistic Jews had come in from the outside. Some had chosen to stay after Pentecost. And in the process, probably as much as anything logistics, they were being overlooked. So the 12, meaning the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. They're not saying that they're above that. They're just saying it's not desirable. Why? Because that would not be a maximum use of their gifts for their to take the responsibility of serving the tables. If they were to do that, then their principal responsibilities that are underscored twice here, uh, namely the word of God, the ministry of the word in prayer would be neglected. So it said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation. Now, when you see the word man or man in the Bible, it can be used in a generic sense like we use it today. All men are sinful. We don't mean just men are sinful and women are not, but there we're using it generically like all people. And it's actually the word anthropos when... It appears that way in the Greek New Testament. Most of us know the word anthropology, the study of man. Now, unfortunately, modern science 
uh, has uh, grabbed it from the realm of theology, but originally the study of anthropology was a study of man based on the scripture. And of course, we're far away from that today. But there's another word for man in the Bible, and it's the word andros, and it, it's used in reference to a man in comparative to a woman. So select from among yourselves seven androi. Andros is the singular of good reputation. Seven literal men, not women, but men. And this is really the very first office of deacon in the New Testament. And of course, um, these are people who are full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. You don't just look for warm bodies and he gives them by name. And of course, one of those great deacons who becomes the first martyr of the church is Stephen. Later on, when Paul writes a letter to Timothy, he really spells out the qualifications very, very specifically. And so he says, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Uh, I think that's something that sometimes we overlook in our day when a church, a local assembly is trying to find a deacon, they don't first test the deacon. Sometimes again, they're just looking for a warm body to fill a slot. And that's a huge mistake. Uh, giving a person the office of deacon, which means a servant, doesn't automatically make them a deacon, doesn't automatically make them a servant. So you're looking for someone who already has a heart to serve in order to uh, maximize their service in the local assembly as a leader. And so initially you screen them. I know our church, Community Bible Church, when we think someone might potentially be a good deacon, then we take some of these qualifications that are listed out and we send a questionnaire that really reflects these qualifications so that we can get to know the person to see if it's someone we might want to pursue. For instance, they must be the husband of one wife. Some people were not aware of their past marital issues and they don't meet that qualification. They must have a good reputation with those who are on the outside. So for instance, we ask a question, uh, do you pay your bills on time? Do you have that as a reputation in the community? We certainly would not want to have someone serving as a deacon in our fellowship and some lost person comes in and they say, oh, he's a deacon and he's owed me $300 for a year and he hasn't paid me. That would be very, very a poor decision on our part. Now, there is a point of rub in this uh, series of qualifications that comes in first verse 11, first Timothy 311, that kind of centers on the question that Dick has asked. Uh, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And then he goes back, deacons must be husbands of only one wife, good managers, and so forth. Um, so he spells out the qualifications, gives this one verse on women, and then goes right back to deacons. And so some have used this one verse on women to say that there's an office for women deacons as well. And they couple this with a passage from Paul's letter to the Romans when he mentions Phoebe, who is a, a deacon. And again, words always find their meaning in context, and there is a technical and non-technical use of the word. For instance, it's like the word apostle that I mentioned earlier. An apostle lost, an apostle, a sent one, can refer in a very formal sense 
to someone who has been chosen by Christ personally, hand selected by him to fill the office of apostle. But then in a non-technical sense, for instance, uh, Epaphroditus is called an apostle. Well, wait a minute. Was he one of the 12? Was he like Paul who came later? No, not at all. But he was a sent one. He was a representative of the church, but not specifically holding to the office of apostle. Well, it's really important that we understand that the word deacon is used in that same way. Like in Mark 10, when Jesus said, he that would be great among you must be the deacon of all. It's the same word that we just read from 1 Timothy 3, where he gives the qualifications for a deacon. Well, wait a minute. He that would be great among you must be the deacon of all. It sounds like everyone should be a deacon. Yes, in the broadest sense, in the non-technical sense, every Christian is to be a deacon. Every Christian is to be a servant. Now, in our English Bibles, we often delineate the distinction between the office and the uh, role of a servant by translating the word deacon. But understand, in many languages of the world, they make no such distinction. And so, again, in Greek, there's one word and the the reader has to supply in his mind, well, what context is this being used? If this is true, it is to be true of every Christian as Jesus taught. And yet Paul argues that not everyone can be a deacon because there must be certain qualities that have to be met. Then you know that there must be two different things in view. So when you come to verse 11 of first Timothy three eleven, the word is gunakos. And it can refer to a woman in general or specifically, depending on the context, it can refer to a wife. So it's an interpretive issue. The New American Standard just says women. And um, in the margin, it says either deacons, wives or deaconesses. And they leave it up to the translator to make that interpretive call. Um, the NIV, the new King James, the old King James renders it the wives of deacons. And I think that's really what's in view. So women must likewise, why does he just bring up women out of the blue? Uh, I think he's bringing up the wives of deacons. I don't think for one moment he's referring to women who serve in the office of deacon. And again, when you find the very first example of deacons in all the Bible, he says you need to select seven men. Not to mention he has just finished a discourse on what men can do in the church and what women can do in the church. And he said, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Listen, I know there are some good expositors, even John MacArthur, who we play on our station, who makes an argument for women deacons, but understand the way in which he does that. He does not believe that a woman deacon has any kind of an authoritative position any more than he believes a man deacon has any kind of an authoritative position in the local assembly. So there are some churches that in terms of their, their government, their polity, they have a single elder form of government, one elder in a group of pastors who serve under them. And in practice, those deacons end up serving like elders. The problem with that is that the qualifications are different. There's a lot of men who might be able to serve in the office of deacon, but they wouldn't qualify for the office of elder. There's some distinct differences. 
And so with that said, you don't want to blur and obliterate those differences that God has clearly articulated in his word. So it's a huge mistake, I think, to uh, one assume that if there is an office of women deacons, that they play the same role as an elder do. And like in most Baptist churches where they have, say, a single elder form of government, there are exceptions to that. A friend of mine, Mark Dever, uh, the head of Nine Marks Ministries, had a huge push where um, you have a plurality of elders in Southern Baptist churches. And they're really going back to their roots when they adopt that. And a lot of younger guys recognize that that is a healthier pattern and really the biblical pattern. Uh, He that among you, if, if any among you is sick, let him call for the elders, plural of the church, singular, not the elders of the churches, not the elder of the church, but the elders, plural of the church, singular. So there is an assumption in the New Testament that there is more than one elder in the local assembly. With that said, I don't think this is an argument for women deacons as loose as the NIV can be. I think they were right in following the King James and interpretively they took this word gunikos and they said the wives of deacons. Why would he bring them up in the middle? Because of the nature of the office of deacon. The office of deacon is a serving office and you are very much engaged with people and very often with people's problems. And sometimes it would be a lack of judgment for a deacon, a servant, someone who formally serves that office and the local assembly to approach a woman in need without his wife, especially um, women who are widows in the church that he's going to give a great amount of discourse to when he comes to the fifth chapter. And so for the appearance sake, and we are to abstain from every appearance of evil, Paul says in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, uh, it is wise for a man to carry with him his wife, and she will become typically privy to issues of confidence in the process of that ministry. And if she doesn't have control of her tongue, for instance, a woman or a wife of a deacon needs to be dignified, not a malicious gossip, then you're going to have a real problem in that local assembly. Uh, the, the, the passage that is often used, but I think it's a non-technical use of the term, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is, in, is at Sancria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she has. Uh, she may have need of you, for she herself has been a helper of many, and of myself as well. So here is this great woman who um, is a servant of the church. And again, is that's the word deacon. It's the feminine form, but is that a, some, it, was she serving the office of deacon or was she just a servant in the church? I think the latter. And I think the NASB is right in rendering it that way. But again, in many translations of the world, it's just the word deacon. And the reader has to discern, is this someone formally and the office? Well, I don't think it's by accident that almost for 1900 years of church history, only men served in the office of deacon. There's a few rare exceptions that you could find, and those rare exceptions, again, I don't think is referring to someone who formerly served in the office, but it was a non-technical use, like when Jesus said, he that must be great among you must be the deacon or servant of all. But to build a case for women serving as deacons, I think really diminishes the high and holy role that God has given to women. 
And that's what we're really dealing with. It's not just simply an issue of what women can't do. It's primarily an issue of what women ought to be doing in the church. And because that has been jettisoned largely due to pastoral leadership who through their own model have given women permission to let someone else raise their children. We have uh, created all kinds of disparaging thinking in the church that has brought turmoil and the breakdown of the family. And so instead of helping families, we've hurt families by uh, diminishing the role that God has given to mothers and to wives and to older women to teach the next generation. So the, the argument to, for a women deacon in the church is very, very weak. And even the most conservative expositors who argue for that, like a MacArthur, does so in a way where the deacon does not in any way, shape, or form function like deacons do in most churches. And he would be the first to tell you that. So I can respect that. But I think a lot of the guys today who serve as senior pastors who are wanting to make a uh, a formalized office of women deacons are doing so because of the pressure of the culture. And it's one way they can kind of, you know, escape being looked down on or being attacked as a pastor and saying, okay, you know, we'll have women deacons and maybe this will quiet the women down and satisfy, you know, their urges. Well, you know, that's all been thrown out the window. That's what happened 20 years ago. And now the whole egalitarian movement has walked in the front door of the church. And so, you know, you got Beth Moore recently preaching in Joel Olstein's church. You know, I mean, that's that's wrong. She's just dead wrong for doing that. She's teaching and exercising authority over men. Now, she would be the first to tell you, I wouldn't do that. I'm here at the permission of Joel Olstein. Number one, she's giving endorsement to a guy with dirty, rotten, crummy theology that is very, very shaky in terms of historical Christianity. So one, why would you want to endorse him to begin with? But number two, no man has authority to give a woman authority that God expressly denies. I cannot as a pastor say, well, my wife is preaching here today under my authority. She's not usurping authority. I gave her authority. I have no right to give someone authority that God expressly denies. So these are really important issues in our day. And it's become a watershed issue in evangelicalism. Uh, It's not simply an issue, I think, of... Um, what does, what's the nature of scripture, but how do we interpret scripture in its historical grammatical context and how do we apply it? So anyway, we only had about 60 seconds on that last time and I just took 15 minutes, but that's okay. I think it's an important question and you might want to go to search and listen to a number of messages that begin in first Timothy two, all the way through the third chapter. I think that would be really helpful to you. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. A listener in Naples, Florida writes, isn't depression something that can be overcome through dependence and discipline? A dependence uh, on God and disciplining oneself to be in the Word in order to transform thought patterns. I have a friend who is suffering from depression and resorted to taking antidepressants. This has cost her her job and many other things. She is a born-again believer, but I feel that her dependence on her pills takes the place of her seeking the root of her depression. What are your thoughts on this subject? I feel like we as believers cannot just accept depression and remain in that state knowing God's promises. How can I speak to her about this? 
Well, it's a good question, and obviously I can't speak directly to your specific friend because I don't know her and the circumstances, and so I don't want to make a judgment against her because I do recognize there are people who sometimes need medication because of damage that they've done to their bodies. And many times the, uh, the, 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 the harvest that we uh, are enjoying or not enjoying is a result of seeds that we have sown. And sometimes people have, uh, through a life of rebellion, have brought themselves through such headache and such hurt that they have literally snapped mentally and they've created a damage to their blood chemistry. If you take a rubber band and you stretch it and stretch it and stretch it and stretch it and eventually breaks, uh, you can tie a knot back in it and make it somewhat functional, but it's not going to be the same before it broke. And sometimes people snap mentally and they do need some medication. So I'm not discounting that, but I would give a hearty amen to you and that most of what is happening today, even amongst born again believers is really not wise. And it's a bandaid approach to an issue. Now, again, sometimes, you know, if someone comes in and let's say for the sake of argument, they um, are torn up with an ulcer and I would suggest, obviously they see a physician and they get some medication to heal the ulcer. But the medication is just a Band-Aid approach. It's an important approach, and I'm not discounting it, but it's only a Band-Aid approach and that it doesn't deal with the root and that the highest, highest percentage, 98% of ulcers are due to worry and anxiety. And that typically is a spiritual problem that has to be addressed in the human heart. And the way to deal with that is, a, is one, to know Christ is your Savior, but beyond that, to learn how to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And part of walking in the spirit is having a ongoing, growing relationship with the Lord through his word. As a man thinks in his heart, so he becomes where there is no vision, literally not the way Rick Warren uses it, literally where there is no revelation, the people perish, they mourn. Uh, Without the revelation of scripture, people are left aimless. And this is a problem in evangelical churches today where there is a great deficit in just consistent, solid, steady Bible teaching because we've gone to an entertainment mode and we wonder why we have all the same problems the world has and we can't really offer people something that is distinctly different. It's not our likeness to the world that wins people. It's our distinctness from the world and that will either attract them or repel them. Some will hate us for our distinctly different behavior. But I think very often people who are on antidepressants, I mean, isn't it interesting to you to read the label of an antidepressant or when they have some commercial on TV and they talk about all the side effects of the antidepressant? Seems to me like I'd rather not take the pill. You know, could create suicidal thoughts. And, you know, I thought, man, I don't think they're heading me in the right direction. So um, it's important to step back and ask, well, what is my relationship to the Lord like? And am I growing in that relationship? If Dr. Billy Graham is right, where he said some years ago that 90 to 95% of the real Christians in America have stayed babes in Christ, then the fundamental problem is a spiritual one. 
And that's where we have to get people back into the basics of the Christian faith on how to walk with the Lord. That's why our Back to Basics series at searchthescriptures.org has been so liberating for so many people. And, and that's why uh, we call it the discovery class uh, here at the church where people can take it every Sunday. It, 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 it begins for the first time for some people every single week. Uh, it's on a rotating curriculum so they can walk in any week during that 45 week um, loop. And so it's important to have that foundation in our lives. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we had a caller who would like to know if America has a place in end times prophecy. If not, is this fact recognized and taught in the major denominations in this country? Furthermore, if America does not have a place in end times prophecy, why do these denominations continue teaching the lifestyles and apostasy in this nation? Well, uh, yes and no in terms of America having a role in end times prophecy, not specifically, not by name. Uh, and yet people will often want to find America in prophetic sections of scripture that have nothing to do with America or what God, uh, what God's plans are for America. So unfortunately, again, people will often find a verse of scripture. Like for instance, we have been studying revelation and we finished the eighth chapter a couple of Sundays ago. Then I looked and heard an eagle flying in mid heaven saying with a loud voice, whoa, whoa, whoa to those who dwell on the earth. And you can hear a whole sermon built up around this eagle who's America who's uh, shouting a message during the tribulation and it has absolutely nothing to do with America. So there are many, of course, animal and bird symbols that are associated with countries all across the world and the eagle is not uniquely our own. But with that said, America does play a role in a broad sense in that there are very few nations that are by name given in scripture in end times prophecy, but there are some, and we studied some of these recently in terms of their ancient names. And so when we were talking about the battle of Gog and Magog, uh, that's an important prophetic event that is yet to happen. It will begin to unfold in the first half of the tribulation. And some of the ancient places are named. Now the, the challenge is that names uh, and places sometimes change. And so like uh, St. Petersburg under communism was renamed Leningrad. And later on, it was renamed St. Petersburg. It's the same place. And so when God names some of the places that are involved prophetically in the word of God, it's important to go back to the origin of that name and, and not how it may sound in English, but what it meant in its biblical context. But in a broad sense, America plays a role, number one, in its leadership uh, we are modeling as a leading nation, as a superpower of the world, wickedness. We're not modeling righteousness. We're modeling wickedness. And so you've got all these people who are just absolutely bent out of shape over our new president because of some of the moral stances he wanted, he wants to take. Now, I don't know how moral a man he is, but I, whenever a president wants to take a moral stand on an issue, then I want to back him on it. If, if he's going to protect human life in the womb, I want to back him on it. If um, he wants to protect my right as a pastor 
to speak out against the sin of homosexuality without being arrested or me being able to broadcast that on this station without losing our license, then I want to back him on that because there's a lot of people who are in the Democrat party, which is the party of slavery. Uh, It's amazing to me how most people are just purely ignorant over the history of the Democrat party. And it's the party of slavery. It's the party that during the 1960s, when uh, Dr. King was fighting for the equal rights of African-Americans that were so opposed to some of the bills that were going to give them those rights. But lay that aside, it's not an issue of Republican or Democrat. It's an issue of being a Christocrat. What is what represents Jesus Christ in whatever politician? I don't care what label he wears. Democrat, independent, Republican. I will vote for him if he best reflects the biblical worldview. And there is a growing hostility led by America against traditional values. And in that sense, we're playing a role in that many of the values that we emulate in our movies and everything else are are being transported around the world through the media. And many young people in the next generation are totally adopting these things. And that's sad. That's a very sad day that we live in. But in a broader sense, too, the Bible teaches that at the end of time, all the nations of the world will go against Israel. And so Israel plays a major role in God's prophetic plan. They are not uh, some ancillary group that uh, have little or no role in the end times of prophecy. They play a major role. And I think it interesting that when our president wanted to recognize that Israel is the capital, uh, that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. I think when he made that statement, it irritated a lot of people. And of course, what we saw at the United Nations is only a handful of company, countries supported our president and the vast majority, over 100, went against him and said that, no, we don't want to give this kind of right to Israel. Well, God gave them that right. That's like telling us too, you know, in America that Washington shouldn't be our capital. Who who gives us the right to say that they don't have a right to say where their capital is? But again, what we're seeing is this growing hatred uh, towards biblical values and towards the people of Israel. And in that sense, America is spoken of and that in that sense, that's what most of the nations of the world are going to do. But if you're asking me for a verse of scripture that says, this is America, you're not going to find one because there's not one. Now, I can make one up like the one I just read an Eagle flying through mid heaven. That's an actual literal Eagle that is flying through mid heaven. That's not America, but people do that all the time. They twist the scriptures. It's entertaining. It sells books, America in prophecy. And, and they try to make the 10 lost tribes of Israel, either, you know, British or American. And, but that's just a, an, a gross abuse of scripture to, to sell books and to rouse people up to hear their sermon. All right. Very good. Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. And Jack from Savannah writes, wow, with Jerusalem now recognized by the U.S. as Israel's capital, is the next big event on the prophetical calendar the rebuilding of the temple? How do you think Israel will handle getting Islamic shrines out of the way on the Temple Mount for that to happen? Well, it's a good question. Uh, I don't think per se that 
uh, the United States recognizing Jerusalem as the capital immediately changes anything in terms of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount area, Mount Zion, biblically, it's a 36, 37 acre piece of property directly across from the Mount of Olives. I think we have someone waiting on line one. Is that right? Are we going to go do. to them? Yeah, All we right. do. We get preference to live callers. Thanks for standing by. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello, are you there? Go ahead. Hey, well, I think it must be line two. Let all right, let's try, try line two. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. This is David again. Um, on social media, there's a Christian singer named Vicki Beeshing who has come out as homosexual, and it was amazing how many people were and claimed to be Christians were congratulating her on her bravery coming out as Christian and her stating, God loves me as I am, and, you know, he doesn't mind that I'm homosexual because I'm still a Christian. And it was just a little bit disheartening just to, just to see just the wave of affirmation for her coming out as a homosexual. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it, in terms of what we're seeing happen in our day in that we now have, you know, evangelical Christians embracing homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle. And of course, this is a, this is a wicked thing and it's an expression of the wickedness that, you know, the scripture says happens to a nation when they turn away from God, when they refuse to acknowledge God as God and give him praise and thanks and God gives them over and he gives them over first to sensuality and then he gives them over to uh, homosexuality and then he gives them over to a depraved mind. In a depraved mind, it's a Greek word that maybe best is captured by the Russian Bible. He gives them over to an upside down mind where they call good evil and evil good. And so now you have people who have walked in the front door of evangelicalism who profess to be, you know, born again Christians who say that they believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, but who also say that they believe that uh, homosexuality is okay. And they'll often say from silence, well, Jesus never really addressed the word of God in reference to homosexuality. Well, that's a weak argument. You could also say neither did he speak about pedophilia or bestiality or rape. But I think it would be absurd to garner support for any of those abominable acts on the basis of that kind of silence. And then second, they argue that the Bible being God's infallible word, that Jesus never addressed this topic. Well, I I don't think that's correct. I think he very specifically addressed the topic. Number one, when he defined marriage, He said that marriage was between a man and a woman. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. So one, he defined marriage uh, specifically the way God defined it in the opening chapters of Genesis. Not to mention that Jesus gave a firm affirmation that the smallest jot nor tittle would pass away from the law, the Torah. And so under the Mosaic Covenant and chapters like Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, God specifically said what he thought about homosexuality for a man to to lie with a man is an abomination. And I can tell you anywhere in the Bible 
with absolute authority where God calls something an abomination then, it's still an abomination now. And so in addition to that, Jesus made it very clear when speaking about his second coming, he compared the second coming of Christ to the days of Noah and the days of Lot. The days of Noah were days of moral impropriety and the days of Lot were days of moral perversion. Jesus spoke about uh, how fire and brimstone rained down from heaven and he warned people to remember Lot's wife. Jesus was not giving an endorsement to homosexuality when he uses an event that expresses how God feels about homosexuality. So God is very, 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 very specific. But again, what we're happening, seeing happen today is we have these pastors who are now arguing for the gay lifestyle. There's a whole bunch of women bloggers that are just disgusting in terms of some of the positions that they are taking. They are propagating satanic wickedness out of the pit of hell by some of the things that they are teaching young women. And unless you have your mind in the word of God, where you're being trained in the scripture, then look out, you can get into some very, very serious trouble in our day. And so again, this is why it's so very important for, for God's men to be teaching God's word on the Lord's day and really equipping people from the word of God. And if we don't do that, we're going to do our people a great disservice. And, you know, again, you add to this, you know, you've got books like Jesus calling and all this nonsense that's based on feeling and how God spoke to me and this and that, where instead of, you know, going into the, you know, feeling realm, we have abandoned the fact realm that God has given us in terms of his word as the basis for teaching people what they ought to believe. So anyway, a uh, good question. We could spend a whole lot of time on that, but if someone wants to really explore that, because what they're doing is they're using the Bible. And these are people who say they believe in the infallible, inerrant word of God, but they're twisting the scriptures to quote Peter to their own destruction. So in my message, is it okay to be a gay, which you can get at our website or at YouTube, uh, you can hear me go through virtually every single passage in the Bible and even the way people twist the passages to try to come up with a biblical justification. Some will not obviously like the liberal Protestant just say, well, Paul was homophobic and he was wrong. These are people, because this is the way Satan works, he disguises himself as an angel of light. They'll take the very passages in the word of God and they just twist them and they redefine them. And so I give examples of that as I walk people through that message. Let me just give you one, one example to help you to see what I'm speaking about here. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature who is blessed than ever. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the women, woman and burned in their desire one towards another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
And so what they say is, is if God created you homosexual and then you engage in a heterosexual relationship, then you are doing what is unnatural. And they argue that that's what Paul is arguing against. And if, however, if God created you homosexual and you're engaged in that kind of a relationship, then that's okay. So it's twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. And now these people have walked in the front door of the evangelical church. All right, very good. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. This is Anthony. How are you doing this morning? Hey, doing okay, man. What's going on? I haven't called you in a long time, but I have a question, not a question, but a statement if you can maybe say something on um, On Wednesday night, we've been going through how to share your faith. Yes. Right? Mm. I missed the first one because I had to work. The first one, the first night, I had to go to Charleston somewhere. But anyway, got to, I got to go online and get the rest. Now, but also you teaching, we've been teaching in the book of Revelation. And it seems like once you, listening to Revelation, knowing what's going to happen, just like I told you, so you, you, want, you don't want to be here after the rapture. Hmm. So how, if you could just touch on it, how important is your message on Wednesday night agreeing with going along with what you're teaching on Sunday? It has to be important that we share the gospel with our friends, especially the ones who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Like to me, it goes together really, really tight. And I'll hang up and ask. Well, it, it does, Anthony, and it's a great observation you make. Uh, forget for just a moment the fact that we may be living in the last of the last days. Just lay that all aside for just a moment. That would not change one bit our responsibility as Christians to be faithful stewards of the gospel that God's entrusted to us. The fact that heaven is real and hell is real should be a motivation in and of itself. So the week that you missed, the first week, I went through uh, five motivations, for instance, the Apostle Paul had for sharing his faith. First, I went through a number of reasons why Christians don't share their faith. They say, well, it's not my spiritual gift. Well, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't share your faith. I don't have the gift of mercy. That's one of the spiritual gifts, but I'm called to show mercy. And so we went through a number of objections as to why people don't share the gospel, Christian people. But then we went through positively five reasons Paul did. And one of the reasons he gave was, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Uh, hell is real. I mean, hell is a real place of torment. It's a place not originally created for man. God made it for the devil and his angels. But it is a real ultimate resting place where all lost people will go. Right now they go to Hades, but someday Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. But Hades in and of itself is a place of torment and punishment. And it's a place that no one need to go because God has provided a way of escape that men might not have to go there through one who satisfied our father. But when we see people, we need to see them the way God sees people. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. God says he's willing that none should perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God sees the judgment ahead is very real. It's an expression of his holiness and his, his just character. 
And so we've lost that, I think, perspective of warning men and women and boys and girls that there's coming a day of not just um, tribulation wrath, though that's very real. And that in and of itself is kind of a pre-warning in God's final wake-up call to the coming eternal wrath. But there's also the eternal wrath that will come. And that's the, that's the wonder and depth of it is that when a person has been suffering in hell and they've spent 10,000 years there and then they realize that I, I've got another 10,000 years and 10,000 years beyond that, it's forever. And we need to realize that God has called us to warn people from that place of judgment. But that sounds really harsh and old fashioned and, well, yeah, that's, that's the day we live in. That's the way a lot of people think. And that's why a lot of Christians who are being sucked up into the culture uh, don't even mention the wrath of God. And yet it's a very real thing that God sent his son to save us from. Anyway. Very good. Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. We were talking about that question from uh, Jack in Savannah. Who wanted to oh, know yes. uh, regarding Israel and now that the Jerusalem may be the capital and recognized by the United States, uh, does this now lead to the rebuilding of the temple and how will Israel handle this uh, uh, as far as getting Islamic shrines out of the way on the Temple Mount? Well, the, the Temple Mount is uh, about 37 acres of property. It's shaped like a trapezoid and on it, of course, is the original location uh, of the Solomonic temple and later the Zerubbabel temple. And that was destroyed in 70 AD, but it's also the future location of the tribulation temple. God's going to build a, another temple up on top of that temple Mount because it is there that the antichrist will go into the rebuilt temple of God and make himself out to be God. Uh, right now uh, in the, uh, sixth century, uh, there was a, um, uh, early 7th century, actually, in the 600s, uh, the Dome of the Rock, for instance, which is not a, a mosque, it's a shrine. Uh, that was supposedly the place where Muhammad ascended up into heaven. And there is also a mosque up there, the El Esca Mosque, and a couple other small little things that are up on top of that piece of property. And they... Uh, are obviously in the way in some people's minds in terms of creating a third temple. Now the temple doesn't have to be rebuilt until the middle of the tribulation period. So if the church were somehow to be raptured today and then the antichrist came on the scene, he will make a firm covenant with Israel and he comes with such persuasive power with signs, wonders and miracles. He will no doubt be able to convince the world that they should follow his ways. And he may be the one that will solve the problem on the Temple Mount. There are, however, some really great biblical scholars, Jewish scholars, who don't believe that the Dome of the Rock is the actual place in which the Solomonic Temple sat, that it was actually a little bit north of that. And so about 200 feet apart. And interestingly, we know, too, that when Christ returns, he will return to the Mount of Olives. His feet will be planted there and he will come through the eastern gate. And if you make a straight line from 
the traditional spot where Christ ascended into heaven. And it's probably a reliable spot. I mean, think about it. First century Christianity, uh, they're watching Jesus ascend into heaven. You know, every Christian in the area wanted to say, well, show, show me this spot where he, he, he went up into the sky and the angels appeared and everybody would be visiting that. And so it's probably a pretty well-documented spot. There is a, a Russian Orthodox church there. But if you're on the top of the Mount of Olives and on the location of the Russian Orthodox Church, and you look straight ahead, it brings you right to the Eastern Gate. And it's through that gate that we know Jesus is going to walk through. And if you kept going straight, then you would end up to the right of the Dome of the Rock. So Dr. Kaufman of Hebrew University gives a very compelling argument that that is the actual location where the temple should be rebuilt. And so if that's the case, it will be less of a contentious issue. There's a Southern theory too, that on the other side of the temple uh, of the Dome of the Rock, between the Al Askam Mall and the Dome of the Rock is the place where the temple should be. And then there's a third position that it should be right where the Dome of the Rock actually sits. And there's another position that says it's not even on the Temple Mount. To me, I just discount it. It's not even reliable. I've studied it. It's just, it's just silly. It's done by a guy who sells books and he's come up with a lot of fanciful uh, positions um, to sell books. And I don't know how else to say it. Maybe he's uh, well-meaning, but it sells a lot of books, but it's not credible theologically, biblically, historically, or otherwise. So up on top of that 37-acre piece of property, there will be a rebuilt temple. And that is yet to be constructed. There is a place in Jerusalem called the Temple Institute. And God willing, we're planning to go to Israel. We're taking about 70 people in May and someone listening, they still want to come. A couple people dropped out. You're, you're welcome to uh, inquire at Search the Scriptures or Community Bible Church. We could still take a few more people. You've missed the discount, but it's not that dramatic uh, in the large scheme of things. But we're going to visit the Temple Institute. And the Temple Institute are Orthodox Jews who have reproduced all the temple furniture, all the temple um, garments that a priest would wear. They are being trained in the sacrificial system. Why? Because they recognize that God has called them to rebuild the temple. So the temple is going to be rebuilt. It's absolutely essential for the final uh, prophetic uh, schemes that are outlined in scripture to be fulfilled. So anyway, good question. So, you know, is this significant with Jerusalem? Well, maybe one step closer. We'll, we'll see, but it could happen uh, through God's sovereign providence any way he chooses. Uh, it's going to happen. Whether it happens, you know, next month or next year, only God knows.